You're listening to Shout for Libraries in Edmonton on CJSR. We're a group of library students from the University of Alberta interested in raising awareness about the roles that libraries play in society. My name's Jesse. And I'm Rachel. And we'll be your host for this half hour of Library Radio. Today, we'll be taking a look at sexual education in libraries. It is essential to a healthy and safe life to be properly educated on sex and sexuality. But how can librarians help youth in their journey to sexual awareness? What is it that youth need and want in their own education? I was lucky enough to grow up in a household where sex was talked about honestly and I learned what sex was, what my parts were for, and what responsibilities I had with my own sexuality and sexual health from a very young age. I remember sex education in the classroom though was a very different experience. It was awkward and any conversation about sex with an adult was quickly hushed away. There was never even the awareness that my library may be able to help me explore these topics more on my own. Is this the same for teenagers today? Talking about sex and the state of education and resource access is an important step to figuring out how to build collections and design programs around sexual education within the library system. Our own Celine Garrow Brennan and Larissa McLeod sat down with Kyle Marshall, the Planning and Assessment Research Analyst at EPL, to talk about how youth seek and share information about sexual health and how libraries can promote sexual education. I remember being in sex ed class as a kid and you have those teachers who are just like, oh, you can tell they don't want to talk about it, can tell it makes them uncomfortable to talk about it. And them saying that makes the kids tune out right yeah. away. Like this person doesn't know anything about this topic, they're just being forced to talk about it. Totally. And Hello, my name is Céline Garrow-Brennan and I am here with Larissa McLeod and today we will be talking to Kyle Marshall and I will let him introduce himself. Hi, my name is Kyle Marshall. Uh, I am the Planning, Assessment and Research Analyst at Edmonton Public Library right now. Um, I guess over the past uh, year I was working as the School Age Services Intern Librarian with EPL before moving into that role and I'm actually not a, a very distant graduate from SLIS. I graduated in uh, 2015. Excellent. Thank you, Cal. We're happy to have you here with us. And today we will be talking about your work done on uh, the titled piece, Sex in the Stacks. So can you give us, just for our listeners, a brief description of what stack sex in the stacks entails? That's like a little tongue twister. For sure, yeah. It was yeah. It was my catchy title, I guess, uh, with a much longer pedantic, uh, I guess, subtitle. Um, basically, I studied uh, with a group of teens. Uh, They're between uh, 15 and 18 years old. Uh, it was a pilot study uh, about their sex education information seeking behavior. So <laughs> there's a tongue twister for you. <laughs> Definitely. Um, so kind of uh, assessing how they find information about sex, um, what they look for when they're evaluating it, um, maybe barriers that they have in, in seeking that information, as well as uh, how they might use or not use libraries. Um, I guess the barriers to not using libraries uh, in, in that regard. 
Mm -hmm. And can you talk a little bit more about those barriers in terms of what you found from that and what you really found to be barriers in that research? For sure. I'd say, I'd say um, well, none of them used the library for sex education information. Um, that wasn't necessarily a surprise to me going into this study. I thought that most of their online, most of their information seeking behavior would have been conducted online. Uh, the two major barriers for them were privacy and awareness. Uh, so first off, um, if they were to take out information or materials from the library, um, who would know about that information? Who would have access to uh, to the understanding that they were that they were using that information and what they might be using it for? And then secondly, um, just the awareness that it was actually available in their libraries. Not a single one of them thought that their school libraries would have actually held that information um, or materials with uh, sex education information in them. Um, some of them just viewed the school library as a literature deposit depository, so somewhere that they can go and get the, the latest YA titles. And some of them actually viewed uh, the library as a place where maybe only curricular materials would be um, available. So while health classes are a part of their curriculum, um, they didn't really, they considered it more of a peripheral part of the curriculum. And so maybe social studies books would be there, but not necessarily something like this about sex education. Right. So that expectation and assumption of what the library can provide to them, too, sounds like a really interesting kind of dynamic in terms of what they're thinking libraries can provide. And I know that your work has been published and you've presented a few times too. I'm just wondering if you know if any libraries responded to the need for sexual education materials or just this idea of the need to promote the fact that they have them too. So I've had some conversations at conferences mostly. I have engaged in some interesting conversations uh, with librarians and with school, uh, school board trustees um, at these conferences. Uh, we've had some interesting dialogues about what they're doing in their libraries and uh, kind of the, the practices that they have in place to increase access as well. You were talking about interesting conversations. Do you have like one comment that really stood out to you that you might have gotten from someone? I think so. I, I presented the Progressive Librarians Guild uh, symposium in back in March, just before it was published, and the theme was actually on sexual minorities and uh, gender diversity. And so, um, yeah, there were some people who talked about um, the ways that I, there was one person uh, I forget his name, but he was uh, he was from, working from Concordia University and talking about how that they were actually starting a GSA at their uh, university, and uh, how that um, specifically in terms of queer issues, the way that they have increased. Um, increased access to their their collections, I guess, by promoting them a little bit more. It's it was a traditional um, religious university. And so this was a major step for that, that institution, I guess. What are some of the ways that teachers and librarians can introduce kids to these materials without being really intrusive and making everyone feel uncomfortable? The, the teens that I talked to talked a lot about uh, what kind of what led them to trust an information source, particularly an adult information source. Um, so I think in terms of demeanor, when, when you're introducing sex education topics, uh, you need to be honest and open. Uh, those two things are very important. Also, don't act uncomfortable. I think that's quite often the case in sex education classes, perhaps. Um, uh, teachers approach it from the, from the perspective that the kids are uncomfortable, I'm uncomfortable, let's talk about that from the outset. While having some of those conversations are good, they, they want an authority. They want someone that they can trust and actually believe uh, that information from them. And they don't want an adult who's going to be squeamish about having these conversations that some people in the class are probably ready to have um, and ready to be respected as the you know burgeoning adults that they are becoming. Um, I think, secondly, uh, the major thing is like, 
within libraries, at least, a lot of it is passive promotion, more or less. So having those displays um, so that when teens go into the library, they know that those that information is available. They may not take it out when it's on display because it's in such a central location, but then they know that that collection's there. Uh, similarly, I think uh, none of these, because I said none of these teens actually knew that their school libraries specifically had that information. I think um, it's really important that when they get their library orientations, when they're new to a school, particularly these students all went to a high school, that information should be highlighted. They should just briefly mention, you know, this section is back here. We have all types of materials uh, for people with many different uh, needs. Um, and then, you know, that student can come back there and then they have the knowledge that, you know, I can get uh, accessible information um, there as well. Excellent. Thank you, Kyle. I think that gives a really nice, well-rounded response. And I just want to add to that, too, the idea of you were talking to teens in order to gain this information, in order to create this pilot study. And so how were you able to gain the confidence of teens? Did you use similar methods or did you use different methods? What what worked for you? <laughs> That's a really good question because it was something that I was a little bit nervous going into. Um, I didn't know any of them really well. I'd, I'd, I guess I'd seen them before. Um, uh, because a lot of them actually were uh, were involved in uh, a person's life that I that I knew. So like like with a lot of research, your your subjects tend to be from um, convenient sampling. Eventually, uh, this was a short term project. I didn't have a lot of recruitment time, so you know I, I got the teams that were available to me. Um, that being said, uh, the first thing that I did, uh, gaining trust, gaining respect, um, and gaining rep uh, building rapport uh, immediately is, is really important. I only met them once, so I had to actually kind of develop a little bit of a relationship right off the bat. And so uh, it was a really simple tool that I used. Uh, it was suggested by Alison Sivak, who's actually um, a li librarian at the Education Library here at Coots at the University of Alberta. Um, basically, I just suggested that they come and talk to me about something that they're passionate about, something that they love, something that they're interested in. It was like a show and tell for teens, more or less. They didn't have to bring a prop, but just like, um, it was, yeah, it was a really great conversation. I actually had to eventually segue into uh, the conversations, um, the research actual questions. But uh, really, how often did are teens asked by adults about something they're passionate about? And, and being uh, provided with that opportunity to go, go on about it ad nauseum and being treated with respect and uh, yeah, really being listened to. And that was something so simple, but it was actually extremely effective. Uh, once we started our interviews, we had a bit of a relationship uh, and we were really doing, um, we were hitting the ground running, I guess, at that point. I can talk a little bit about some of the interesting things about information seeking behavior specifically for youth. So, so a couple of the things that I taught that I researched was, um, I guess, the one was life concern information needs, and uh, this speaks about um, kind of the social norms and social landscape that help to define and shape information seeking. Really, uh, for life concern information, um, this is uh, stuff like health information, uh, drugs, uh, information about drugs, stuff like that that is really germane to the adolescent experience. Um, yet they don't uh, have a really high focus in um, in the curricular environment because there are much more academic topics, I guess, that are that are read about more frequently. Um, Todd and Edwards actually did a study that um, that looked at life concern information seeking for, um, with teenage girls in terms of drugs, and they actually found that the participants really viewed their information world as being really devoid of information on drugs. Even though uh, Todd and Edwards found that they actually inhabited a world that was really rich in potential information sources, they just weren't looking seeking them out uh, to use them. So that was kind of one interesting study that I came across when 
teens are finding their uh, information from interpersonal sources. So rather than you know searching information on the internet, um, learning from uh, class textbooks and stuff like that, they're talking to their friends or adults around them. Um, in those cases, they actually don't perform reliability checks in the same way that they would with uh, other information sources. So this came up in my study. If, if a friend or a teacher had told them something about sex, they wouldn't go in and look to confirm that information in the future. Whereas if they found it out on the internet, they talked to me about opening up multiple tabs, finding a consistent stream of information that really confirmed that. It was a much more um, more rigorous process. It's quite interesting in, in the way that like rumors or misinformation is spread in those environments. Like they can actually have really um, large effects on the way that those people view or understand uh, sex and their sexual health. That idea of fact checking is really, really interesting because it's something I wouldn't have thought of like as a child or as a teen to do. But and as we were talking to you about your your pilot project while we were preparing for this, we also all talked about how much fiction had to play with our sexual education. So like this is a bunch of librarians, right? So we probably read a (laughs) lot. But I mean, growing up in the 90s, a uh, really interesting source for sexual development is Judy Bloom. Yeah. we kind of found like, and her novels and her stories really include this kind of information that we're interested in, but it right wraps it up in this like nice kind of approachable narrative. And I think there's other authors out there. Judy Bloom is kind of one that just comes to mind right away. But do you think fictional literature can still have an important role in this information? giving, especially in this age of internet and fact-checking in all these open tabs. Well, yeah, and I think um, stories are so powerful, right? And we're still drawn to them for so many reasons. And I think Ju- Judy Bloom is a, is an excellent example. She kind of broke through for YA, um, having those more open conversations with youth uh, that they weren't really available uh, in the past. I, I think that these are absolutely vital ways that, um, that youth can seek information about sex. You know, they may not um, choose uh, a book because they're looking for um, a really rich educational discussion, but it will expose them to often uh, diverse sexual experiences. I think for queer kids to see themselves represented in books is a, is a really massive, massively important uh, thing for them. It can help them feel normal. It can help their experiences feel normal. That goes for queer and non-queer kids as well. And it really can model healthy behaviors um, or explore narratives in which these topics are really more open. So yeah, I think uh, fiction's a really, obviously a, a beneficial um, uh, resource for these kids. Uh, that being said, I, I don't, you don't want to put too much pressure on authors to have that role as a sex educator. Um, but these stories, um, these stories are happening. They're reflective of, of the very diverse teenage experience and, yeah, the, our contemporary youth. Was there a fictional book for Kyle and Larissa that really, like, I don't know, opened a door or was important in your sexual development? Oh, I guess for me it might be uh, Clan of the Cave Bear, which once again very fictional, um, but it you know it has actually a lot of sexual experiences in it, and I think opening that up to it was a part of this character's life and these other characters' lives. It was just a part. It wasn't the defining factor, but it you know so it made me feel like sexual experience is something that. It's just a part of the broader scape of life. Totally, yeah. Totally. <laughs> For me, so I didn't come out until I was about 19 years old, and so okay. I and I also wasn't a, a really big uh, fiction reader as 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 a kid. That being said, now that I'm an adult and now 30, I still read. I sometimes read YA books with um, with teen. Uh, 
queer plot lines. And I think part of that is because I wasn't like that wasn't a life that I that I could have had at the time or I was open to. And so like reading that, I'm like, oh, that would have like that's so nice. It's very sweet. And it's an interesting um, uh, it's an interesting perspective, I think. Um, So, yeah, I didn't I don't have a specific fiction book, but I I, like as an adult, Aristotle and Dante discovered the the secrets of the universe is like such a beautiful story. Yeah. yeah, I think for me it would be in like, are you there, God? It's me, Margaret. Like classic. definitely like classic. In your research, did you come across any, um, you know, youth talking about learning from perhaps fan fiction or uh, fiction that was online written by other youth or you know, anonymous authors. Yeah, that's that's actually a really interesting question. Um, I did uh, speak with one uh, one young man who was really into fan fiction. Um, that being said, he derided it as an information source. Uh, he talked about uh, uh, the fact that um, they often, like often the authors would talk about things that were, uh, that would have been painful to actually <laughs> actually experience. Um, so he, he was actually quite well read up on, like, he was actually, he was still, I think, undergoing um, a change to his gender expression and so, uh, and identity. And thus, um, I think he had done a lot of research on that, uh, on that topic. So he was a little bit more advanced, I guess, in his knowledge about sex education than, than other youth his age. But yeah, he, he actually derided fanfic as a, an information source. I don't think that's necessarily the opinion of all youth. And I think just as with um, YA authors writing about that, there's some legitimate fan fiction authors whose stories me that are really expressing a, a wide um, array of experiences. Because we also talked about, uh, like, LGBTQ. We have mentioned that in a few circumstances. And I'm just wondering if you think there is some sort of a distinction made between heterosexual and LGBTQ material it's funny. I talked to a, a a school librarian actually working at an elementary school um, just this past year through my research um, at EPL, and she talked about the fact that she interfiled her her queer materials with her with her I guess heterosexual sex ed materials. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily sex ed materials um, because it was an elementary school library. There was there was some of that, but it was it was more stories, um, and she really felt it was vital because. Um, there, it was, it's just another way of, of for a relationship to exist or for a person to express themselves. And so she really viewed that um, that separation as and segregation as, as not a, a great thing. You know, you can always add a sticker to it um, and then keep it interfiled um, right. so that the access point is similar. And, but yet you have some sort of identification that this material is is about a certain topic. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't think... Um, I don't think that they should actually be se- be separated. Uh, I think one, sorry, one more thing that I did uh, come across in my study as well was that um, through my literature review is that there are certain librarians, I guess in the past, that would look, you know, just at circulation stats when they're looking at weeding a collection. Um, but sometimes certain materials, particularly sometimes queer materials or sex ed materials, materials that some for many reasons, some people may not want to actually check out from the library. They might have a lot of wear and tear on them, but only have two circs in the past like five years. Um, that means that, you know, people are going to the library. They're looking at them there. They're not taking them home because they're a little bit concerned about other people finding them or their account inf- information having that on there. But they've clearly reached an audience and they're being used and thus they should be replaced um, with more current materials, I guess, instead of being weeded. And perhaps that's a way around um, the privacy issues for children where, you know, you don't have to take it out. It doesn't have to be on your official record. You can just use it in library. And I'm sure as librarians, 
would love people to just use materials in the library as well. Totally. And I think like that was one thing that came up as well. While displays are really great in school libraries, uh, these collections probably shouldn't be like near the windows at the front, you know, right next to the, the hallway. So people know exactly that, you know, Sally is going to look at, <laughs> at that information. You know, it should be in an area where there is a little bit of privacy. Well, Kyle, I think we're coming to an end of what we have to ask you, but we've been asking all of our guests on our show this, but if there's any reading material or any sources that really, really stood out to you that you would recommend as reads for our listeners. Oh, this is not even sex. Uh, You know what? I'm going to talk about sex education materials and then I'll give like one novel recommendation. Definitely. (laughs) Whatever works best. It can Uh, be fiction or nonfiction. Cool. So the first... I know I'm, I'm going to go longer now, but basically I've, I've looked at two, uh, I guess, 2016, 2015 publications for sex education in the past year because I'm starting to review for the Deakin Review of Children's Literature. It's out of the U of A here. Anyways, um, the first one is, uh, gosh, what's, this book is Gay by James Dawson. Really fantastic book. Um, it's a book I would have loved as a kid. Uh, there are lots of hilarious comics in it. Uh, and he actually approaches things from a very um, positive perspective, uh, provides youth with... Um, ways to counter bullies, but also um, provides them with information about sex that they may not find from a textbook. Um, and then the second one is Sex is a Funny Word by Corey Silverberg uh, with illustrations by Fiona Smith. Um, this is for younger students, uh, uh, probably, I think, grades three to six, I would say. And it's actually meant to be read in, in I guess, in conjunction with their parents. So to sit down, read it, have these open conversations together, and it will actually start a really healthy relationship, um, I guess, between the parents and the child. Um, it, it kind of fosters everything from trust, uh, respect, um, joy, and justice. That's the, these are the terms that they use in, in actually looking at sex as a topic. And there actually are really very few squeamish or um, explicit topics. This is for younger ages, so it doesn't really need to get into that. But um, it's, yeah, I think using those, those core values is a really great way to start uh, someone's uh, conversation about sex. Um, and then just for fiction, I read a book last year called A Little Life. And it's by Hanya Yanagahara. Um, it's a, a really large, like seven, eight hundred, nine hundred page novel um, about four male friendships and, uh, I guess, f- sorry, four men who are friends together and the way that their friendship morphs from their college years until middle age. And it's extremely powerful. Um, it's not for the, um, it's not for people who don't want a heavy, deep read because it's uh, it's extremely emotionally uh, affecting. But uh, very rewarding, uh, extremely beautiful story, and I'd highly recommend it. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Kyle. I'm so happy you could join us today. And I've learned a lot just in this last uh, this last session. Oh, so for thank sure. You. Me too. Really yes. opening the eyes. That was Celine Garot-Brennan and Larissa McLeod talking to Kyle Marshall from EPL. If you are just tuning in, you're listening to Shout for Libraries on CJSR. To learn more about this topic, check out Kyle's article, Sex in the Stacks, Teenager Sex Education, Information Seeking Behavior, and Barriers to the Use of Library Resources in Volume 7 of the Journal of Research on Libraries and Young Adults. Next up, let's go to Lindsay Campbell for this month's movie review. You gotta decide for yourself who you gonna be. Can't let nobody make that decision for you. Do it. You gonna raise my son now? I got you. I promise. I'm not gonna let you go. I'm your mama. You're my 
middle of the world. Moonlight, rated R, is Friday. Hi, my name is Lindsay, and this is the Shout for Libraries Film Review. I wanted to talk about a film that I think is one of the most important films of the year. And uh, it's rather timely, given that our topic this month is sexuality, sexual education. So, um, let me tell you a little bit about Moonlight. Moonlight is directed and written by a friend of mine, Barry Jenkins. He was born in Miami, and he studied filmmaking at Florida State University. He said several, uh, he directed several short films, including this really great little sci-fi called Remigration, and his de- debut feature was Medicine for Melancholy in 2008, which starred Wyatt Senek from The Daily Show. Moonlight is his second feature film. It is adapted from a play called In Moonlight, Black Boys Look Blue by Terrell McCraney, and it stars Mahershala Ali of House of Cards and Luke Cage, Trevante Rhodes, Janelle Monet. The astonishing Naomi Harris from 28 Days Later and Pirates of the Caribbean. Oh, the amazing Andre Holland of the Nick Selma and American Horror Story. No hiding the fact that I'm a huge fan. <clears throat> so this film uh, debuted at the Telluride Film Festival this last Labor Day long weekend. That's where I had the pleasure of seeing it. Then it went on to the Telluride, um, the Toronto International Film Festival and uh, just was the buzz of the festival sort of snuck up out of nowhere, uh, did far better than all the big ones that people were thinking were going to do great. And now it's currently at the New York Film Festival. Uh, It's told in three parts, in three chapters, and it follows a young protagonist, Chiron, from childhood through adulthood as he navigates sort of the dangers of drugs and violence in his inner-city Miami neighborhood. And it explores masculinity and identity at approximately the ages of 12... 16-ish, and uh, like 30-something, or like 10, 16, 30-something. It, strugg- uh, it deals with his struggles with his mother's addictions, uh, with his peers' impressions of him, and with his feelings towards his friend Kevin. Uh, this film really does such a great job conveying the pain of loneliness and also of the continuing sto- social stigma surrounding homosexuality, particularly in the African-American community. So each chapter, uh, and in each chapter, there, there's a lot of hope in this film, uh, which is kind of also astonishing about it, that it has this warmth to it, and it's not this uh, apocalyptic sort of view of this man's life. In each chapter, he finds a patient and caring person that helps him, you know, sort of establish his own internal compass. And like I said, it's about vulnerability, the search for love and acceptance, and the struggle to express and communicate, to to connect and to make meaning. I've honestly never seen anything like this film before. It's a coming-of-age tale, but it's also a coming-out tale. And it is a stunning accomplishment from its beautiful cinematography to its impeccable casting, to its sound design and its editing, and the use of chopped and screwed music, which is really interesting, to the the crickets in the final scene. It is a beautiful, beautiful masterpiece, and I think it will become a canon of uh, black cinema as well. So it's gotten rave reviews across the board, you know, five stars, two thumbs up, masterpiece. Um, I really liked this one quote, uh, which is quite true. Everything in this is is absolutely true. Benjamin Lee really hit the, the nail on the head. Stories of LBGT people of color have largely been ignored in film. 
or at least relegated to the sidelines, while instead were offered up the whitewashed history of Roland Emmerich's tone-deaf Stonewall, or straight-friendly Oscar bait like The Danish Girl. But in a festival season that's too often populated, quite literally, by Vanilla Awards Fair, writer-director Barry Jenkins' astonishing new film is both proudly black and refreshingly queer. It's a thrilling, deeply necessary work that opens up a much-needed and rarely approached on-screen conversation about the nature of gay masculinity. Vanity Fair says, Jenkins deftly and insightfully mediates on the fraught intersection of black masculinity and homosexuality while also giving his film the quiet murmur of something mythic and elemental. I cannot wait for Moonlight to be released wide so that everybody can go see this beautiful, beautiful film. It really is a masterpiece. I'm not just saying that because I know Barry. I'm saying it because it's true. So, check out Moonlight. Stay tuned for award seasons, I think. It's going to come up and surprise some people. Barry Jenkins' Moonlight. This was the Shout for Libraries movie review. Thanks for listening. That was Lindsay Campbell with her review of the film, Moonlight, directed by Barry Jenkins. And that concludes this month's episode of Shout for Libraries. You can hear a new episode every month, right here on CJSR. Thanks to our guest, Kyle Marshall, for sitting down to talk with us. And thanks to Bulat Nugmanov, who composed our theme music. For this month, Shout for Libraries recommends checking out Kyle Marshall's article, Sex in the Stacks, Teenage Sex Education Information, Seeking Behavior, and the Barriers to the Use of Library Resources. Follow us on Twitter at Shout for Libraries, that's Shout, the number four, and then Libraries, and on Facebook to get some more recommended readings on sex education and librarianship, as well as a link to Kyle Marshall's article. Thanks for tuning in, and if you want to listen to our past shows, check us out on CJSR's SoundCloud page. Once again, I'm Rachel. And I'm Jesse. This has been Show for Libraries on CJSR.